listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast UK, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the UK. I'm Rob Wall. I help connect businesses with technical talent, and today I'm your host. Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange Podcast. Today I'm joined by Liz Bambury, Stephen Kahn, Jim Wilcock and Sandeep Patel to discuss improving diversity and inclusion in security. Before we delve into the topic, uh, let's do a uh, work away around the room with some introductions. Uh, let's start with you. Liz, would you like to uh, kick off with a brief introduction? Yes, yeah, so I'm Liz Bambury, Chief Information Security Officer at Hiscox Insurance. Um, actually, my first time outside banking, where I spent 18 years, first starting off um, you know, at JP Morgan in back office settlements and first got into cyber security 10 years ago by accident, as is often the case when I was um, on location out in Singapore and joined Australia and New Zealand Bank. Worked my way back to UK, uh, moved to Standard Chartered as head of information cyber security policy and recently only five months ago joined Hiscox, which is where I am now. Thanks Liz. And yourself Stephen? Hi everyone, my name is Stephen Kahn. I, I've been around for, for, for 25 plus years working technology. Most recently, some of the firms I've worked for, uh, much like Liz, some of the big brands, HSBC, the Royal Bank of Scotland, um, GlaxoSmithKline, and I'm currently doing some interim work with, with the um, UK government. I'm also chairman of uh, Club CISO, which is an executive network. And, and my, my passion is, um, uh, I'm the chairman of white hat ball which is taking place um this month on the 25th so hopefully i'll see some of you if not uh, some of your listeners on that on that journey and had a fun time <laughs> thanks david and yourself jim yeah hi jim woodcock um so uh, i am the CISO and head of cybersecurity consulting at phoenix um i've got some 35 years uh, experience um in in, in it um, I sp spent uh, uh, quite a bit of time working um, in infrastructure and um, uh, security roles, uh, largely across financial services. Um, worked at uh, some of the big, big names, RBS, Direct Line, uh, Merrill Lynch, uh, both on a permanent and also uh, a, a contract basis. Uh, but I've recently just just kind of moved from the buy side of consultancy to, to the sell side working at Phoenix, which I'm enjoying a lot. Thanks, Jim. And finally, Sandeep. Hi, um I'm Sandeep Patel. I'm the Group Chief Security Officer for APM Group. Uh, we're an Australian organisation that do um, employment services around the world uh, in about 10 countries. Uh, similar kind of backgrounds to everybody else on the panel. So my, my life was I started uh, about 25 years ago, cross consultancy, then I moved to banking. So I was at Merrill Lynch as well, I was at Bank of America. I also was at GSK and just after Stephen left, I was uh, after parts crossed over there as well. So, yeah, been been in this for quite a while uh, across multiple industries. Hope that I can participate in this podcast and provide some insights. Thanks, Sandip. Okay, great. So now we're all introduced. Let's move on to the topic of focus. Um, so you all have some questions or statements on improving diversity, inclusion, and security. As usual, I'll work around the room asking each of you to pose a question and your reason behind it. Uh, each of you have the opportunity to take give your take on the question. So um, if you'd like to start with yourself, Liz, I'd like to pose your question to the table. Okay, thank you. Um, so promoting the profession at an early age is hard enough purely from a gender perspective. How can we build on all the initiatives currently in place to include a wider lens across diversity? Stuff. Um, come to yourself first, Jim. 
yeah hi, hi there thanks so i uh, personally i i've um I, I just kind of come across the ncse cyber first program i don't know if anybody else is is aware of that i think that's a really uh, great way of getting uh, get, getting folk involved um it's aimed at uh, obviously young people from year eight all the way up through kind of university uh, apprenticeships and bursaries um, I think getting uh, getting the message out there to to you know, people at that age is is really powerful. If you look at the diversity um, and kind of the lack of unconscious bias, you tend to get primary school and, and, and secondary schools. Yeah, I think I think that's a really really useful tool. I'd certainly certainly recommend uh, people looking at it. Um, there's lots of free resources on there, lots of free courses uh, for all ages. Um, so I think that's a that's a really strong tool to actually actually use as an organisation. Thanks, Jim. And yourself, Sandip. Yeah, so it's a difficult one. Uh, I think uh, infrastructure is seen as quite a technical subject, so it's, it's difficult for uh, a lot of people to just get, think that it's something they want to do as a career, especially when you're starting off at an early age. It may not be a technical subject that you want to cover, but infrastructure covers such a wide area of subjects and areas across an organisation. I think uh, we do ourselves a disservice in terms of not promoting all the various kind of roles and careers you can have in infrastructure. I used to run the graduate program for Infrastructure Security at GSK, and we used to get a cross section of uh, STEM sub, uh, students uh, across multiple disciplines on biochemistry, physics, et cetera, to come, in, come to the program and see if they want to join our graduate program in Infrastructure Security. And we found it very difficult to persuade the, the female graduates to join the program. It was, it was not something that really just resonated with them. Uh, I st I'm still what what kind of battle in my head exactly what we could do to change that and motivate them to take on as a as it's on as a career. Yeah, thanks, Sandy. And yourself, Stephen? I think um, I mean I obviously echoes many of the sentiments made so far. But for me as an industry, we need to break down the barriers and explain to people in every every quarter and every um you know area in life as it were. So the the different elements in cyber. So, for example, I've met people who have come from a marketing background to help in cybersecurity communication and so forth. I've met people who have, have a who've been in the forces and so forth and are now doing risk management and people leadership. So I think that's that aspect of it. So we need to advocate that. Secondly, from practical experience, when I was with, with the Royal Bank of Scotland, we went to a to a um, to, to a to a to a local school, um, not another um, an affluent area. And we advocated you know, how you can use technology and was a building a robot, programming a robot and so forth. And it was amazing to see the level of engagement by young people. And there was a, there was a cross section of, you know, male and females in that school, um, children, as it were. So I, I think you know, those are things that we should be we should be looking to do. I think academia also probably needs to play a part in the sense of breaking down the narrative that you need to be a technical expert to contribute in a cybersecurity. You don't need to be a technical expert. You know, there are different facets we can contribute in. Um, so as an industry, we need to look at how we can advocate it more widely. Thanks, Stephen. Anything else you'd like to add, Liz? Yeah, I think, um, I think I really resonate with what you just said, Stephen. It's um, really about looking at those diversity barriers. And obviously it's a lot wider, as I said in the question, than just looking at the male, female gender these days, right? Diversity and inclusion includes such a, such a diverse range of peoples. And there's, you know, um, barriers can form three parts. So you have the start early part, right? So that's the school leaving age. 
and you know there's so many kind of initiatives going on right now with schools um, and, I, and I don't mind shouting out Next Tech Girls, who we work quite closely with outside with the IC Squared London chapter, right, who do a marvellous job in putting girls into technology and cybersecurity work placements. But again, it's wider. Why, why do people not want to come forward at that age? Is it peer pressure? Is it their personalities? Do they consider it boring? Do they stay quiet in class, et cetera, et cetera? How do we get over those barriers? And then you have, then you have barriers in general, right? There's um, bias in um, the information, in our language, in recruitment, maybe. Um, sorry, Rob. Um, early, early career decision impacts, future choices, right? How available is that? And it's not just recruitment, it's all our language, right? And then finally, there's barriers, I suppose, on a more personal level. And that's where I talk about the role modeling. Is, there, is it stereotyped? Are there role models like me or like you or like you or like this other person? Right. And I think that's really important as well to get those role models in place. So if you look at all the barriers, then you can find the solutions. I agree, actually, Liz. I think role models is, is fundamental because if you, if you go to some of the conferences that we all attend and if you look at the if you look, if you just look above and look at the diversity in, in that in that room, you'll have your answer. Um, and yeah. yeah. Yep. Great stuff. Well, thanks very much. Okay, uh, thanks for your question, Liz. Um, we'll move on to Sandip. Can you pass to your question now? Yeah, so uh, this is about um, just tracking exactly how do we measure that we're actually doing uh, moving the needle on this? Um, it, because um, we all live in our little kind of ivory bubble, our little, our little kind of area in terms of what we think is good and what, what, what should be better. Uh, so I just want to understand what you guys think in terms of what, how do we measure uh, that there's been some tangible improvements in terms of diversity and inclusion in the industry as a tangible kind of aspect of, of improving the, the situation. Uh, certainly, if I can, I can, I can answer that. So in terms of yeah, the, there's a number of initiatives which are currently in play, um, and it's two two initiatives that I'm, I'm, I'm aware of. So one is the um, the Confederation of British Industry, where, they, where they're talking about change the race, and this is a FTSE uh, 250 um, going forward, and, and I think the last time I looked and spoke to some of those folks, about 100 odd, 150 odd organisations have signed up to that, and that there's some definitive, uh, you know, quite quantitative sort of numbers which respective organisations have signed up to. The other thing is well, what I'm seeing across certainly um, across the FTSE organisations, boards are taking this very seriously. They actually begin to put diversity numbers in place. Um, to find the right candidates to, to fill some certain key positions throughout throughout the stack. And to point out Liz made earlier, I think that there's also recognition it's not about a particular kind of diversity, be that gender diversity, there's other other diversity elements that they are thinking about. And, and it's refreshing that organisations are taking it seriously um, in, in that regard and actually measuring it to the point you made. Thanks, Stephen. Any your thoughts, Liz? I don't think I have much to add on that, to be honest, because I'm not really aware of what we're doing at an industry level, more at a company level. And then I suppose with the client kind of collaboration forums that I attend and sit on, this is obviously quite a key and very important topic. Um, but industry level, I'm in the insurance industry. I know we um, uh, take diversity and inclusion very seriously. I know we have various kind of uh, career acceleration programs and mentoring programs 
all of which look at the different ratios of diversity and where they will see their own personal gaps in those companies that they're looking to address. Um, the overall, though, um, I can't really add to what Stephen's been saying on, um, on, on how we're tracking it at that industry level, though. Thanks, Liz. And yourself, Jim? Yeah, I, th I think you're right. I think that there, there are very few kind of hard and fast metrics. Um, I mean, th some things you can um, kind of extrapolate from would be things like things like uh, gender pay gap reports, um, which my, my wife's actually been doing some work on it. And I'm absolutely horrified, to be honest with you, with what um, is kind of coming out of these gender pay gap reports in terms of gen gender equality, uh, pay equality being, uh, you know, achieved within five years, you know, real, thought as being a good thing. Some you know, household name firms don't have a target date for gender pay quality. I find that absolutely, um, absolutely incredible. But having been in the industry for 35 years, um, definitely there, there is much more of a healthy um, uh, kind of presence of diversity, which I, which I think is, is a good thing, uh, much more representative of, of the population. Um, but I think to the point that Stephen made, I was actually at a trade show at the Excel Centre last week, and I just took I just took a few minutes just to kind of take a step back and have a look around the room. And it was very male. It was very middle-aged. It was very white, um, and and that that clearly shows that whatever we're doing, um, it's not enough. Thanks, Jim. Any final thoughts on that, Sandip? Yeah, I'd, I'd echo some of that. Um, I'd also think there may be something that our industry what is potentially do. So we've got, like you mentioned, there's got the IC squared, got IISP, there's a number of uh, British computer sciences. There may be something we can do at that level as well. Because they've got a lot of membership of the key kind of professionals that we may be able to use them and leverage their kind of membership saying, right, how does it look? And stop surveying them and try and get some quantified measure and start trending it and see if we're getting some improvements mm. at, at the industry level at that stage. Uh, I do echo your, your positions around the gender pay gap and also at the company level, what we can do. I've been quite lucky in the last couple of organisations where we've had quite a diverse kind of uh, uh, company. So they've been, I think my current company has 60% are female uh, as, as people and 60% are over 60% are uh, female leaders that in senior executive positions. Similar at GSK, there was almost a 50-50 split in information security uh, kind of senior leadership group as well in terms of female to male and, a, and quite a diverse kind of group as well. And as we're only talking about one area like female to male, but that is 50% of the, of the population. It's something that we really should be focusing on because I think it is a, a major kind of area that really we really need to improve because it just it just brings that diversity of thought into, into a group that we, we miss if we don't have a, a, kind of a mixture of different kind of uh, kind of backgrounds and individuals uh, as part of our decision making. Thanks, Sandip. Great stuff. Okay, so we'll move on to yourself, Jim. You want to pose your question? Uh, yeah. Um, so, qu question really is is about um, security function and neurologically diverse um, kind of capabilities. So, do do any of you are you aware of any firms uh, or within your own firms where you actually actively see to build neurologically diverse security functions? I'm not I'm not aware of any firms that actually did, but many years ago I, I met a chap who, um, who 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 had two, two children who were very on, on the on the spectrum, and and what, what he did actually and I forget his name, uh, he um uh, started a company where, where he would put people like the, you know who are on the spectrum into socks because they're very good at analysing and in analysing information and they'll do this far more efficiently than. And then uh, some other people. So, the, the, so to the, the point here is, 
there is there is a need for people with, with a particular skill set and a particular you know, slant on on looking at vast amounts of information. Um, and I think I think there is that. But equally enough, um, in, on a practical level, people do look at, uh, especially when they're building uh, capability to capable teams, to look, trying to get that kind of balance in there just to get a, get, get a quality of uh, different perspectives. Thanks, Stephen. Yourself, Sandeep? It's, it's something that uh, the industry has been talking about for a while, but I'm not sure if it's something that we track. It's probably a little bit of a sensitive subject. Uh, you don't want to ask somebody <laughs> that question as part of the interview process. I think you'll get into a lot of trouble if you did. So um, asking that or putting that on a job spec as well could be quite contentious to, to put in with. So I, I'm not sure if that's something that we do well in an industry, but it's something that I think we do need to, to address because there, there is probably, like Stephen said, areas of information security that really could benefit from it. But I don't want to, to basically put them into that, those silos because I'm sure they could contribute to a whole heap of different kind of parts of an information security function. So it, it, it's a difficult subject and I, I, it'd be really good to understand it a bit better, especially if we can get other industries that are doing it well and understand the subject better and work with them to understand how they can potentially help us as an industry. Yeah, good point. And yourself, Liz? Yeah, I think um, they're all really good points, um, Sandeep. But we have to also bear in mind where we've come from, right? So I think collectively um, within our industry, amongst any other industry, we've come a long way over the last few years, right? So I can remember when I was first leaving school, you would I would never be asked questions about whether or not I had a disability of any kind. Um, that, that would never have come through into your interview processes and how you write your CVs and how companies um, receive your CVs. And, you know, diversity and inclusion was barely, wasn't even a topic really, right? So bearing in mind, not wanting to give my age away, that that was a short while ago, we have actually come on a long way, right? So now we're talking about it. Now we're addressing these difficult to topics. Um, of which neuro, uh, neurologically diverse people is just one, one of many. It is now part of the recruitment process. It's now part of interviews and CVs. And people are now much more open in individual companies and as an industry to actually realising that you can get an awful lot of talent from all these people, no matter whether you're disabled or not disabled or what, whatever the different... Um, um, ability or disability might be, right? And I think that is the really important thing to note. Um, yes, we've got a long way to go, but I think the fact that we're having this conversation and we're going to continue having these conversations just helps to promote the whole topic and to in make make sure that um, the inclusion continues. Yeah, thanks very much, Liz. Uh, and Jim, any final thoughts? Yeah, I think, well, I think the reason I asked the question is, is because, yeah, I can honestly say that some of the, the smartest and most inspirational people I've worked with have actually had neurological conditions, um, you know, dyslexia, a, a, ASD. So, so it's something I do, I do feel quite passionate about. And, and, I, and I certainly feel that, that there's a bit of a move towards um, uh, certainly medium-sized organisations having managed recruitment services um, that will do pre-screening of candidates. And, and, and I think there's a real danger um, that, uh, yeah, unless, unless they're adequately briefed, then, then a lot of talent um, it just doesn't really get a look in. Uh, so I, I think, uh, I think that, that's definitely something, something to, to look at. And certainly in a previous role, 
Um, I insisted on uh, ensuring I briefed uh, agencies directly uh, when, I, when I had a role and I'd specifically talk about new, neurodiversity. Um, I think I think one positive thing though is is that some some big players, um, so um, SAP, Microsoft, and Google would be good examples. They actually do actively seek to uh, to attract uh, a neurodiversity talent pool, um, which I think is a, is a is a very positive step. And I, I was actually quite quite surprised. Um, I mean, Liz, you, you will know um, Willis Towers Watson. Uh, they mm. they also do the same. So it's something that smaller firms can do. Um, yep. You know, if they if they put their mind to it, and I think it's something as as we kind of all recognise, uh, we need to do more of. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. Okay. Last but no means least, Stephen, you want to pose your question? Absolutely. Um. So, so this one, I think we've touched on um, some elements of of this question, but let me let me pose the question anyway. So we've agreed that there is a business benefit to having having a, having a diversity inclusion. We've agreed that we that it brings to us. A new set of skills into the organization so how do we promote that in the workplace how do we change i think Liz touched on it earlier on about the unconscious bias what are what was people's thoughts on how we move the needle as it were Stephen, send it answer that yeah so uh i think um, I, I, again i think i'm quite lucky in the organization i'm in they do a hell of a lot as an organization to, to promote diversity uh we have a very engaged uh HR departments and also senior exec that should actively track it and do metrics around diversity and make sure that we have active programs to educate our workforce in terms of how we promote it, not just to bring the diversity into the organisation, but how do we sustain a model? A really good example was that there were some fantastic um, workshops that the organisation ran around menopause, which is absolutely amazing as an organisation just to sit there and understand what people go through when they go through that process and it's and it actually really just was really kind of insightful uh to give us that that kind of insight that's just one aspect there's a whole other aspect of a load of different areas the organization is doing globally to promote it so uh, in terms of what we do there's, there's a hell of a lot we can do and i'm i'm sure there's a lot from infosec that we can learn from how they how they're doing it uh because i think we need to partner more with, with these departments like the HR and learning development department to understand how we can leverage that uh, within information security and then take that out into the wide, wider kind of community and, and start doing so. These, these podcasts are probably a really good kind of starting point to start, start having those more in-depth conversations and, and focus on specific areas because diversity is such a wide subject. Uh, you know, like we just talked about neurodiversity, we're talking about disability, we're talking about uh, Gender, gender diversity. There's a, a, a huge different areas, and if we can focus on a few and start digging into it in more detail, I think that's going to be a, a, another kind of big step in the right direction. Like this venture, I think we are making the right uh, conversations. We're starting these avenues, and it's been open and frank. I think we're just going to carry this on and start um, pushing it, pushing it forward. That's great. Thanks, Anne. Uh, and yourself, Liz. So. Um... We've, we've, we've been doing quite a lot. So the company I work for, um, I think, makes a concerted effort to bring diversity and inclusion into its conversations. Like yourself, Sandeep, HR is very focused on this. Um, it wasn't that long ago that we had a talk on diversity and inclusion. Um, and, and a lot of it is based around our bias and our unconscious bias. Right. So I think there's two I think there's two um, different prongs to this. Firstly, there's what I call the kind of the business action, right? 
and we need to recruit we need to make sure we recruit diversity into the leadership teams right so it needs to be seen from the top that it's not just talk it is actually action maybe things like blind applications blind interviews can help with that being aware of our bias and unconscious bias because um, I hate to say it but we do have it even me um, offering mentoring as I said earlier I'm, I'm a big fan on mentoring and I will come back come back to that in a second with the second prong and again being transparent and using inclusive language which is a big learning curve for a lot of us right it's a big learning curve for me and it's it's not something that I immediately feel comfortable with because my initial kind of reaction is well why should I change right I'm happy with everyone as they are why should I change and I'm starting to realize that that's not necessarily the right attitude and I'm very happy to hold my hands up to it on the second side of this though I do feel and this is something I've brought up in other kind of panel discussions and things is the accountability or the responsibility of the individual as well the individual actions we need to provide the environment and support for individuals to take um, the onus on themselves to want to put themselves into these roles as well. Going back to initial early, early age barriers, right? So, um, you know, and that's making, making them feel confident to want to apply for positions, making them feel confident that they have an equal chance and actually putting themselves forward and be, us being able to help them to do that. So you've got the business side of action and you've got individual action as well. And I think between the two of those, um, companies can make good headway with this. That's great, thanks Liz. And finally, Jim. Yeah, so, so I think, yeah, Liz, you might have read my notes there, I think. <laughs> so <laughs> echo, echo, echo most of what you said. I think, I think the, uh, a couple of points though, I think we need to be careful um, about too much buying in of diversity. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, as, as well as making sure we've got, you know, diversity and, and inclusion at the right levels of the organisation, uh, we should also be really actively trying to promote it from within. Um, I think that that should be a, a big, a big driver. And I, 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 I do suspect and you know, certain conversations I, I've had to do kind of leave me feeling that some organisations, you know, look to kind of almost set quotas and then and then buy diversity in, which I think is is kind of counterproductive in, in the long run. Um, the, the unconscious bias thing is 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 a, is a really interesting point, and that's come up a couple of times. And it, it's there's also a feature of um, you know uh, International Women's Day, you know the hashtag break break the bias, which was trending wildly uh, across the across the internet. Um, I I was having a conversation with uh, with with an individual uh, that um, trained to become a magistrate, and he he said one of the most difficult uh, elements of the training that he had to do was actually where they help you uh, recognise your unconscious bias, and he said it's really really uncomfortable. Um, you know, because you, you've got these deep-seated uh, biases that you don't, you just don't appreciate that are there. Um, and um, you know, ha having having learned this, I think that's something I definitely want to explore for myself. And I think that comes to my my final point that um, you know, you talked about Liz, I think about uh, individuals' responsible responsibilities within organisation to you know, kind of ex uh, uh, kind of manage their career. But I think it's also an individual responsibility to, to recognise and and address where you have an unconscious bias. Um, and, I, and, I, and I don't I don't know of any organizations um, that actually actively have that as something, you know, as something in a HR toolkit to help people recognize and address that. No, thanks, Jim. Any final points, Stephen? No, I, I'm just going to touch on a base thing that Jim made, actually. So, so I've worked at a, in a couple of organizations where there is unconscious bias training and the unconscious bias training um, is twofold. One is the 
the, the respect for your colleagues you know, in the building. And the, the, there was another initiative, just one firm did this, others would know of, is anybody who was interviewing would, would have to do this um, unconscious bias training first, which is interesting because you're, you, you know, you, if, you go, if, you, if you have that training, then you can think about it slightly differently. Uh, but, 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 but I think, I, I think for me, I think it starts with um, advocacy from senior leadership within an organization. So this is something we care about. This is something we want to we want to drive, um, but but not not at the expense of the organ, organization, um, to the point that Jim made buying, um, you know, buying diversity in, as it were. Fantastic. Yeah, great stuff. And any further points anyone would like to make on that subject? Fantastic. Well, we'll leave it there. This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. Uh, I want to take this opportunity to thank Liz, Stephen, Jim and Sandip for providing their insights on the topic. And thank you for listening. Uh, if you'd like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or email robert.wall at evolutionjobs.co.uk. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.